To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. Coming up on the program today, the past five days in seven quick minutes, the new deal in today's economy and a trip to the produce aisle. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. It is Friday, today, the 19th of January. Good as always to have you along, everybody. This has been one of those weeks, I think, where it was more about the economic currents and cross-currents than it was about cold, hard data. I mean, we did have some of that, too, but it's a mood thing I'm mostly talking about here. And here to talk a little bit more about all of that are Catherine Rampell from The Washington Post, Jordan Holman, also from The New York Times. Hey, you two. Hey, Kai. Okay. So, Jordan, let me start with you and and the one, you know, really significant piece of data we did get this week, retail sales. They were up. Yay. Go consumers. Uh, but at the same time, as you wrote in the paper today, uh, layoffs at Macy's and Wayfair. What the what? Yes. Well, so we always hear from retailers the few weeks after Christmas that they are either closing stores or they're laying off. That's kind of like a normal pacing that we hear from them. But what's interesting about Macy's and Wayfair is that they said they're laying off to eliminate layers, a lot of its middle Mm. management. And they're attributing that to saying we need to make decisions quicker. We need to be closer to our consumer. Hmm. And so overall, I just feel like that's saying there's still some misalignment between how retailers are positioned to respond to shoppers' needs, and they're just trying to get closer to that as the consumer keeps changing. Well, say a little bit more about the consumer changing because, you know, we're buying stuff. What more do they want? (laughs) Well, so not everyone's benefiting. Macy's um, and Wayfair have both struggled on the sales side because they're selling apparel and furniture, and those are the categories that have been really weak over the past year. Um, So, you know, if you're a company that's selling uh, the products uh, or if you're selling food and groceries like Mm -hmm. the Walmarts of the world, you're really uh, you're seeing boom times. But a company like a Macy's, they have to figure out as people are pulling back on their key categories, how they're going to save money and kind of protect themselves during this year ahead. Right, right. Fair enough. Okay, thank you for the clarification. Now, Catherine Rampell, the American consumer. Learned this morning from the good people uh, at the University of Michigan. Consumer sentiment is way up. We're feeling pretty good. Our inflation expectations are down. Do you suppose this economy has turned a corner with the consumer? I think there was a little bit of a lag between how good the economy looked on paper and how consumers felt about it. So in some sense, the economy 
turned a corner before all of this, right? Like we mm. were already seeing inflation coming down. Unemployment has been very low, on, under 4% for over two years. Oh. Again, GDP has been strong, et cetera. But as we've talked ma- about many times before, consumers were still really grouchy. And I think partly what's going on is that maybe consumers have gotten a little more acclimated to the higher prices. You know, again, Price growth has come down, but right. that doesn't mean price levels have come down and come, come down. So I think it took a little bit of time before people got used to that and stopped having sticker shock every time they went to the grocery store. Uh, so I think that's part of it. Real wages um, are up, meaning wages after you account for inflation. That was not the case a while ago, but it is the case now. So I, I think all of those things put together suggest that consumers are feeling a little bit less anxious about uh, how prices are going to change, what their job prospects look like, et cetera. Which is good. We don't want consumers to be anxious. But Catherine, let me ask you this, and it's and it's a kind of a subjective question, but I'm going to pop it to you in a different way. You're at a dinner party, you're chit-chatting with your seatmate, and they say, Catherine, you cover the economy all the time. What, what, what do you think the actual state of the economy is? What are you going to say? I would say I think it looks pretty darn good. (laughs) Certainly way better than anybody had expected not too long ago. Um, You know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, there were all of these calls for recession. So far, knock on wood, we have escaped that. It looks like we're very close to this coveted soft landing. Beyond that, the economy looks even better on many metrics than had been forecast at this point before the pandemic happened. Like if you look Mm -hmm. back at what the Congressional Budget Office or the International Monetary Fund or others had expected uh, this economy to look like in terms of how many jobs there would be or how big uh, gross domestic product output GDP would be right now, we are exceeding even those Mm pre-COVID forecasts, which you would not expect given that COVID you'd think would have a big scarring effect on the U.S. economy. And most economies around the world are are not doing better than had been forecast before right. the pandemic. So on a lot of metrics, things look pretty good. Jordan, same basic question to you. Use the lens, though, of your, your area of coverage, which is retail and consumers. How do you think retailers, and let's remind everybody that something like 70% of all the activity in this economy is spending by or on behalf of consumers, right? How do you think retailers would answer the question of how's this economy doing? Well, I know that they are very happy uh, that the recession did not happen and that people haven't (laughs) greatly uh, pulled back on spending as was um, expected. I think um, they would say that people are still willing to buy. They're being very choiceful. And so retailers are all trying to position themselves as value in whatever way that means for them trying to say like if you only have this much to spend spend it with us mm-hmm. so they're thinking about the messaging right now they're thinking about pricing so that's gonna um be tough conversations with their suppliers um over margins um you're gonna just see them be a lot more exact when it comes to their decisions um because they know that anything could change and another thing they're really thinking about is how that consumer confidence that we're seeing real strong right now might change this year um, as we get closer to the election. That's something I'm hearing about a lot, that uncertainty. Jordan, sorry, super quick. One more thing for you. Uh, Chris and Schwab did a piece for us yesterday about deals and bargains and how, you know, retailers are using them and consumers want them. Just that thing you said about pricing power. Do you think retailers think they have pricing power right now in this economy? Mm, That's a great question. I, yeah, I think the um, calculation definitely has changed that they 
have a lot more pricing power right. um, than they did before, um, especially like maybe this time last year. Uh, but they know they have to be careful. Uh, this time last year, they were very much celebrating. Right. You know, you heard the, the Coca-Colas of the world like, yeah, we passed our uh, our higher prices on to the consumer. You hear that less now. Right. But once prices stay high, they usually don't fall. Right. So I guess you don't have to celebrate as much. Right, right. Uh, Catherine, last one to you. Um, and it's about things you've been writing about uh, this week. The 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 spirit of bipartisanship, uh, small though it may be, that has broken out in the Congress of the United States around the child tax credit. It is uh, remarkable for the bipartisanship and also economically positive. You got about 45 seconds. Yeah. So it looks like a bipartisan tax deal is shaping up. It's sort of a set of trades, um, an expansion of the, the existing child tax credit to essentially make it available to more low-income families or to increase its value to low-income families. The biggest gains, in fact, are for uh, poor kids and those considered near poor. So that's, in my view, great news. In exchange for the child tax credit stuff, there is also a set of business tax breaks, uh, most of which had already been on the books and then had expired at Mm. the end of 2022. So Republicans got a little of something. Democrats got a little of something. Thing. Arguably, the American people got a, got quite a, a lot of good things. Um, this hasn't passed yet. I should clarify. Yes, but I think this is a, a really encouraging breakthrough that occasionally Congress can uh, can actually cut deals and get stuff done. I was just chuckling because the Democrats are getting something and the Republicans are getting something and the American people are getting something. That's the way it's supposed to work, you guys. It is. That, that It shouldn't be so uh, remarkable. And yet it is. And yet it is. Catherine Pell at The Washington Post. Jordan Holman at The New York Times. Thanks, you two. Thanks, Guy. Thanks. Have a nice weekend. Wall Street to end the week. Forget consumer sentiment. Let's talk investor sentiment, shall we? It was good. Oh, so very good. Today we'll have the details when we do the numbers. For those of you not up on your New Hampshire state legislative news, here you go. Republicans in the Granite State are floating two bills that would make it a felony to invest taxpayer dollars in ESG funds. Those are investment funds that incorporate environmental, social and governance factors into their portfolios. Tack that onto this. The investment research firm Morningstar is just out with some analysis that shows for the first time investors pulled more money out of ESG and sustainability funds than they put into them. Marketplace's Matt Levin has more about the present and the future of ESG. Until pretty recently, investors were pouring money into ESG and sustainability funds. Roughly $20 billion in 2019, $50 billion in 2020, $70 billion in 2021. And during that period, ESG actually generated better returns than traditional investments. Then in 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine and the price of oil went nuts. When Exxon and Chevron took off in 2022, sustainable funds didn't perform as well as their conventional funds because they didn't benefit from that rally. Alyssa Stankiewicz researches ESG at Morningstar. She says the Fed's fight against inflation didn't help. When someone's looking at an environment of high interest rates, it can make activities like building out renewable energy, less profitable. 
So part of the ESG retreat is just investors chasing higher returns elsewhere. The other part is politics. Paul Washington is executive director at the ESG Center at the Conference Board. About 40% of U.S. companies have experienced some form of backlash, which can range from a little bit of healthy skepticism all the way to being the targets of political opportunism. Conservatives have charged big financial firms like BlackRock with prioritizing a so-called woke agenda over their fiduciary duties. So instead of greenwashing, a new term has entered the chat, green hushing. Veet Hennish researches ESG at the Wharton School. The fact that we no longer use the term ESG on analyst earnings calls, that fund prospectuses are dropping the term ESG, doesn't mean they're changing what they're doing, but they're self-censoring because they don't want to be called out congressional hearing. Hennish says the right way to judge ESG investing is how it performs in the long term, even if it's not called ESG by then. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. Funny thing happened in an elevator on the way to an interview the other day. I'm so wow, used to we're stuck. Here. I know. Oh my god, this is we're insane. for real stuck. Wow. Didn't last long, but long enough, and I got to the interview fine. Tell me who you are and and uh, where we are. My name is Ken Bicknell. I'm the senior manager for policy research and library services here at LA Metro. We're on the 15th floor of our. Metro headquarters building in downtown Los Angeles. And if there were a contest for best view from a library anywhere in the no, world, no joke, right? I think we would win that. We're looking out the window right now. You can see the entire skyline of oh, downtown. Oh, totally can. Look at that. Hollywood sign, Griffith Observatory, Dodger Stadium, the Arroyo Seco. <laughs> and yeah, so for nice, going nice east. plug for a while we're here. The Arroyo Seco Parkway, also known as the Pasadena Freeway, was built during the New Deal. The Works Progress Administration and the Public Works Administration, should you be curious. And it opened in 1940, making it one of, by some accounts, the oldest freeway in the United States. Describe it for me as it was built. What was it supposed to do? Well, it was supposed to be a maximum speed of 45 miles an hour, which sounds like you're going about half the speed you want to nowadays. (laughs) And the lanes are pretty narrow by today's standards, still exist. I'm sure most people in the Los Angeles area have driven on this first freeway. And it's a little bit harrowing. You enter and exit from a dead stop. It Uh, is indeed harrowing with those narrow lanes, no shoulder exit ramps, about as long as a driveway, and people going way faster than originally intended. It's 80-something-year-old infrastructure still being used, and it is kind of the origin story of the L.A. freeway system we have today. It has a special place in people's hearts here. It's something that Angelina should be proud of. The Arroyo Seco is, in its way, pretty. This was not for commuters, necessarily. This was not for, like, we need to get somewhere faster. It Literally was, about a Sunday drive. Yes, it was a, a national scenic parkway concept. That concept, of course, is long gone. The Arroyo Seco is designed to carry around 27,000 vehicles a day. The most recent guesses we've got are at better than 120,000 a day. This, this is going to sound oxymoronic, but, but the Arroyo Seco is, in my mind, 
almost cute as the freeways go, but it's also a nightmare. What do you think? It's true. In the book Freewaytopia, uh, the author is have, uh, right talking here. about his daughter. She's just gotten her driver's license fairly recently, and she describes the freeways very cute. It's like, oh, well, there you go. It's like driving on a miniature freeway. It, well, that's exactly right. I mean, it kind of is. It is. Or if you've ever been on the old Autopia ride <laughs> at, at Disneyland, Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, exactly everything right. is bizarrely 75% the size that it should be. So much has changed in this economy since the Oroyo Seiko was built during the New Deal. And it's obviously not the only infrastructure from back then that we're still using. But in ways more than just our built environment, the New Deal was a before and after moment for this economy. A timestamp of sorts, marking how deeply the federal government was going to be involved in our everyday lives. We're going to be talking more about that idea starting next week, a new series not about the New Deal, but about what the federal government and the Biden administration are trying to do right now, spending trillions of dollars to try to create another before and after moment in this economy. We're calling it Breaking Ground next week, Wednesday. Coming up. So it's a little banana-ish, a little bit pineapple, sometimes a little bit of mango. I mean, it's basically a smoothie, right? First, though, let's do the numbers. Oh, I totally had the really happy music on for today. That's so interesting. Dow Industrial is up 395 today, just over 1%. Finished at 37,863. The Nasdaq grew 255, 1 and 7 tenths percent. 15,310. The S&P 500 up 58 points, 1.2%, 48 and 39. For the five days gone by, Dow added 7 tenths percent. The Nasdaq rose 2 and 3 tenths percent. S&P 500 ascended 1 and 2 tenths of 1%. Heard from the National Association of Realtors that in 2023, a little over 4 million existing homes were sold in this economy. That's the fewest since 1995. Back then, the NIR says the median price of a home was just under $112,000. Today, it's more than three times that. Checking quickly on real estate stocks. Zillow up three and a third percent. Redfin grew four tenths percent. You're listening to Marketplace. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs, like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com slash deals. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. Congress has once again and just barely managed to keep the government funded for the next month and a half. Anyway, no lapse in appropriations, as those shutdowns are officially called. That does not, however, mean that all of this political and economic brinkmanship isn't still costing you and me and the other 165 million or so American taxpayers a whole lot of real money. Marketplace's Kimberly Adams has this one. As much as federal workers may be sighing in relief that their paychecks are safe for now, Jennifer Victor, who teaches political science at George Mason University, says those same workers... 
they will tell you that every time we get close to one of these government shutdown deadlines, they basically have to stop doing their real jobs for the week or two or three in advance of that deadline and start preparing for a shutdown. And that's expensive, says Maya McGinnis, who runs the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. We know this is not just millions of dollars. This is probably hundreds of millions of dollars that it actually ends up costing. McGinnis also points out that the continuing resolution isn't exactly a win either. The CR keeps funding at around the same levels as the previous year, while we, in theory, wait for Congress to pass a real spending package. But that waiting also has a cost. Clearly, the moment we're in requires very different thinking in terms of national defense, where the risks are, what our national priorities are. We should not be saying, let's not look at the details of the budget, figure out our priorities and set new budgets. But with so many almost shutdowns in recent years. It could be that many of these federal agencies have for lack of a better term, this preparation down pat, which may reduce the costs. Jasmine Ferrier teaches political science at the University of Louisville. On the other hand, the confidence in the government and, of course, in the ability of Congress to fulfill its constitutional duties is a cost that is very hard to estimate. And that's the cost that has George Mason University's Jennifer Victor most worried. She says this repeated erosion of public confidence in the government... That probably in some way contributes to some other challenges that we have in the United States right now. Like the overall negativity, Victor says, is dominating our electoral politics. In Washington, I'm Kimberly Adams for Marketplace. It's a truism of today's global supply chains and the power of modern science and the joys of refrigeration that you can find fruit practically anywhere in the world on the shelves of your local supermarket. With one glaring omission, a fruit you might not have even heard of, let alone noticed its absence, the pawpaw. Yasmin Tayag is a staff writer at The Atlantic, back from a quest to find one of those oso-elusive pawpaws for herself. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Why do you call, well, granted, you know, writers don't get to write their own headlines, but why does the headline of this piece say, um, why is the most American fruit so hard to buy? What makes it the most American fruit? Oh, the thing about pawpaws that most people don't realize is that it's native to this continent. Well, first of all, most people don't know that pawpaws exist. For, yeah, full stop. Most people don't know pawpaws, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but those who are in the know go crazy about it. And what people don't realize is that they grow wild over large parts of the U.S., all across the Northeast, and even down south toward northern Florida. How did you come across a pawpaw? Well, I'm a bit plugged into the foodie world, so I hear people talking about this, like, elusive American fruit all the time. It's very big in, like, gourmet baking and bartendering. Wow. But the first time I really engaged with one, <laughs> with the idea of a papa, was when a cousin living in Windsor, Ontario, so that's right across from Detroit, mm -hmm. told me that they grow wild all over the place. She's like, people go crazy for them, and yet they're just wild fruit. You can eat them from a tree in, a, in the park. Mm -hmm. And that was what really got me thinking, you know, they're so in demand, and yet they're 
all over the place. Well, a- answer your own question, because uh, <laughs> I can go to my local Piggly Wiggly or any Piggly Wiggly probably within a, a well, let me exaggerate only a little bit, 20-mile radius, and they probably would not have pawpaws. That's probably true. And the main problem with pawpaws is they're really hard to store and uh, and ship. As soon as you pluck them, they get ripe very fast, within three to five days, and they become really squishy and brown and ugly. And so this is the main reason that pop-up producers say they're not Hmm. widely available. So really, it's kind of a marketing and supply chain problem, right? Because nobody's going to voluntarily buy a brown, squishy, gross fruit, right? Exactly. But, you know, there is demand, and there are some specialty orchards growing pawpaws that, you know, will make the effort to ship these delicate fruit very quickly and get them to these farmers markets. Yeah, and somebody's going to hear this and come up with some innovative packaging solution, and and then we're going to be inundated with them. Um, I should have asked this at the beginning. What do they look like, and then what do they taste like? Ooh, okay. Well, they're kind of small and greenish if they're not already beginning to go squishy. <laughs> kind of like an avocado. <laughs> yeah, <sorry. laughs> yeah, they're about the size of a dinner roll. Okay. And when you slice them open, they're usually a pale yellow or like a light orange inside and squishy. And they've got little brown seeds inside them. You, you keep saying squishy and I'm, I'm worried about a texture problem, but that's a whole different thing. Then, and then what's the taste like? You know, in a word, I would say tropical. So huh. it's a little banana-ish, a little bit pineapple, sometimes a little bit of mango. It's really not what you would expect from a fruit that grows in North America. Yeah. Is there money to be had in these things, do you suppose? I would say that now that there is demand from a certain subset of foodies, mm-hmm. there is money to be made. It's a hot, exciting ingredient, you know, much like I guess kale was in the past, or even avocados before that. Okay, okay. Kale is not a selling point, let me just say. (laughs) Speak for yourself, I think. All right, all right. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, Okay, so on the theory that you've experimented with these things, uh, and on the way out here, what's your favorite way to eat them, serve them, prepare them, bake them? How do you like them? I really enjoyed just scooping it right out of the the fruit. It was was like a dessert, in a way. Um, Yeah, yeah, it was... uh, like an exotic treat. All right. I got to go find one of these things here in Southern California, by the way, which is definitely not the Northeast where these things grow. No. <laughs> yeah. Desmond Tyag, she's a staff writer um, on the science desk at The Atlantic. Desmond, thanks a lot. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. This final note on the way out today, kind of good news, bad news. The good news, and the data here is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The good news is that the gender wage gap in this economy is the narrowest it has ever been. Women now make 83.8% of what men make. Median weekly earnings is the parameter there. The bad news is, obviously, that women only make 83.8% of what men make. Lots of variation, of course, by race and ethnicity on that one. Our theme music was composed by B.J. Lederman, Marketplace's executive producer is Nancy Fargali. Donna Tam is the executive editor. Neil Scarborough is the vice president and general manager. I'm Kai Rizdal. Have a great weekend, everybody. We will see you back here on Monday, all right? This is APM. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine 
I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. Just splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Khreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.